Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. This is the podcast where we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording this here in what is now known as Oakland, California. This is the unceded homeland of the Ohlone people, who are still very much here and active and taking leadership in this movement town. This podcast, as many of you know, is aimed at white Christians like me who want to respond to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy, settler colonialism, ableism, and other forms of oppression wherever they show up, including in our own Christian tradition. We are defecting from the systems, structures, ideologies, and habitual ways of being that uphold supremacy of all kinds. And in their shell, we are building up a new world. That's also the song you are hearing throughout this podcast. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. So just before sitting down to work on this podcast, I was texting with a church friend I hadn't talked to in a while. Although I wish I had reached out just to say hello, I was actually responding to the news that Tyree Nichols, the young black man murdered by police in Memphis, was actually her nephew. There are almost no words that make sense in this situation, but we were texting back and forth, and I was so struck by what she said to me about the fact that the five officers who beat Tyree to death were both black and also indoctrinated into the white supremacy that pervades the policing system. She texted me, we are very far from home. We are very far from home. I've been thinking about how resonant that statement is for me too, as a white person. If home is a place where we live in reciprocal interdependent relationship, where we know ourselves and each other and every living thing as a manifestation of divine love, then we are indeed a long way from home. Maybe like me, you have been feeling that distance in these days. Not even a week before the release of the body cam footage, there were three mass shootings here in California two targeting the Asian-American community and perpetrated by men from that community. In an editorial in the New York Times yesterday, Jeff Yang argued that these mass shootings are a terrifying sign of assimilation. Those are his words, a terrifying sign of assimilation to the United States by men who are very far from home. The third mass shooting was here in Oakland in the eastern part of the city, likely a result of intra-community violence as well. As a white person, I grieve these horrifying events knowing that they are not separate from me, knowing that in fact I am complicit in them, 
that this violence is a malignant outgrowth of an intersecting set of oppressive systems, including white supremacy and capitalism, to which my ancestors assimilated long ago, which I uphold by my participation in them, and from which I benefit, even as I and all of us also suffer under them. We are very far away from home. And these networked systems of oppression seem to be blocking the road there. So today, we'll be looking at a section from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for help in dismantling the roadblocks. As I started this podcast, I thought I would be talking to you eventually about the need to dismantle them in order to navigate toward home. However, as I've written, the whole notion of home has started to shift and morph under my keystrokes. I find I no longer trust the possibility of home, but I do think it might be possible to go somewhere else. I hope all of this will make more sense by the time we reach the end of this little scriptural meditation. Or if it can't make sense at this point, I hope it is at least destabilizing of sense in ways that are useful. Our scripture this week is Matthew 5, 13 through 20, and it goes like this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. But for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know this passage, right? It's one of Jesus' greatest hits, and it's almost cliche in Christian circles to talk about salt and light. We have adopted that as part of our professed identity, even if aspirationally. And that bit about a city on a hill is particularly familiar, especially to those of us who've been alive for a little while. That phrase was one of Ronald Reagan's favorite expressions, and he used it, of course, to refer to the United States. Since then, the verse has become a sort of catchphrase for American exceptionalism. It is almost taken for granted that in order to win an election in this country, every candidate must nod to the notion that the upper-middle-class American lifestyle 
is one that everyone in the world longs to emulate. We are a city on a hill, showing everyone else how to do it. Everyone wants to become like us, right? Right? Well, one of the first things I learned working on and listening to this podcast is that when we read scripture, we have to consider where we as readers would have been situated in the text socially and politically. And I hate to break it to Ronald Reagan or his spirit and all those who have followed him, but Jesus was not talking to white Americans. Jesus was talking to a crowd of mostly peasants in a part of Palestine occupied by the Roman Empire, And maybe there were also in the crowd some disaffected functionaries of the regime, tax collectors, maybe some religious officials, but all of them positioned very differently than I am as a white documented citizen of one of the world's superpowers. Jesus was talking to his fellow Jews, members of a beleaguered and multiply traumatized community who had been repeatedly attacked, annexed, deported, and colonized throughout their history as a distinct people. In today's terms, we might say that Jesus was talking to the equivalent of Haiti, another small nation of people who have repeatedly thrown off repression, only to be brought again under the control of wealthier and more powerful nations and international bodies. Jesus is essentially saying that the people of Haiti are the light of the world. Let's sit with that for a moment. How would that reorient your faith and your life if that were true? What if Jesus is talking to Tyree Nichols in this passage? What if Jesus is saying to Tyree and his family, to the descendants of enslaved Africans, that they are the light of the world? What if Jesus is saying to anyone who has migrated to this country including farm workers living in squalid conditions on mushroom farms in Northern California. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. I think that's exactly what he's saying, and to whom. This means, among other things, that we who are white are not at the center of this story. And that's a little awkward, (laughs) a little uncomfortable, I remember, and this is a confession, the first time I went to a Black History Month event that was really, truly designed for Black participants. This was years ago, and I remember being a little uncomfortable, even fighting feelings of sleepiness and boredom. It felt so unfamiliar not to be able to find myself in the presentation We who are white are used to seeing ourselves reflected back to ourselves in every mirror. That is one of the invisible privileges we enjoy. I also have felt a little pang from time to time when I listen to movement leaders here in Oakland who are laser-focused on black self-determination. I can't find myself in their vision. And if I'm willing to admit it, as I am here, sometimes that stings. It can be momentarily disorienting in the same way to think that something in scripture might not be speaking to or for or about me at all. Where am I in this picture? We'll get to that, actually, but for now, let's 
stay in this destabilizing moment? What would it mean for us in today's global order if Haiti, not the U.S., but Haiti, were the light of the world? Haiti, the only nation founded by formerly enslaved Africans who rose up and threw off their enslavers. What if Haiti, even in the midst of its current turmoil, under the thumb of paramilitary death squads with ties to the U.S. and other more powerful countries, what if Haiti is where we should be looking for our salvation? What if Haiti, resisting at every turn Western neoliberal development, is showing the rest of it how the rest of us, how it ought to be done. Try holding that in your mind. And as the revised moral and social map of the world wobbles and jiggles around in your brain, see if you can locate the unfamiliar hope in this new configuration. I don't know about you, but if I can hang in there with it, eventually I feel my body relax. There's something liberating to me in the self-determination of a people from whose oppression I have benefited. There is a part of me that longs to be knocked off this pinnacle that I occupy without any effort or even intention as a white U.S. citizen. If the story is really not about me, at least not directly, then I am freed up to be a person among people, a worker among workers, Just another bozo on the bus, as we say in the 12-step rooms. There's a kind of hope that comes if we acknowledge that liberation is going to come from a framework totally outside all the ways we have learned to gauge success, and that in fact it might offer us no opportunity to be a success at all. I think that's what Jesus is trying to conjure up here both in the Beatitudes from last week, and thank you, Anne, for recuperating the power of those for us in last week's episode, and here in this passage. Jesus is talking here to colonized people about resisting the threat of assimilation. If salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? Jesus is talking about self-determination, even in the midst of oppression. See, one of the ways that colonization works is by convincing the colonized to take on the culture and values of the colonizers. Sometimes this is voluntary or even just coercive. Other times it's done with some degree of force. For example, through the use of boarding schools for Native children in Canada and the U.S. and through the missions here in California. The idea is that if you can get a people to buy into your notions of honor, success, merit, beauty, the good life, and so on, you can better control those people. And Jesus is saying, don't buy it. Jesus urges his people not to give up their own saltiness, not to allow it to be melted into some kind of imperial Roman stew. In fact, his salt metaphor makes me think of Henry Ford's American melting pot. Do you remember learning about that? At the Ford English School, immigrant workers from all kinds of backgrounds would learn English and so-called civics in preparation for becoming U.S. citizens. Then, at the graduation ceremony, graduates would wear clothing from their native lands. But then they would descend into a giant pot. It was literally a pot built in the middle of the school, and they'd emerge from that pot wearing identical business suits 
and waving American flags. I'll link to a picture of this in the transcript. It is so wild. It's a picture of salt losing its saltiness. And the workers were very far from home and getting farther. And these workers at the time were all what we would call white. Whiteness is a master project in assimilation, where immigrants from all over Europe gave up their ethnicity in exchange for some degree of power. Or if not power, since working class white people were offered precious little of that, then a paycheck, a modicum of respect, what W.E.B. Du Bois called the psychological wages of whiteness. We have, as white folks, traded in our saltiness for whiteness, exactly the kind of thing Jesus was warning against. And we continue that process today by participating in the systems that structure our lives, of which policing is only one timely example. We participate by working for banks that fund mass incarceration. We participate by teaching curricula that whitewash and sanitize history. We participate by preaching in churches that occupy stolen land and hoard wealth generated through racist policies. There is currently no way to escape this participation. We are still trading in our saltiness. We are a long way from home. So what do we do? Is there any way to reverse this process? Let's turn to that question now. So there's an interesting thing about salt, which is that you can't actually separate it from its saltiness. You can crush it, grind it, even dissolve it. But if you allow the water to evaporate, you have salt. Salt can't actually be destroyed because the saltiness is just what salt is, right? So it is to be created in the image of God. You can ignore that in favor of fitting in. You can try to trade it in for status and wealth, paper over it with devilish social norms and hegemonic social systems, but we are all nonetheless created in the image of God. The salt can never lose its saltiness, truly. What does this mean for the mess we're in? How can it help us navigate toward the mutual, equitable, self-giving, interdependent life that should be our birthright. Like a lot of white folks right now, I have been doing ancestry work, trying to recover something of the saltiness of the ethnic identities of my people before they made their devil's bargain with whiteness. Of course, identifying as English, Welsh, Irish, German, Baltic, Scottish American (laughs) does not excuse me from whiteness. So long as we live amidst systems, practices, ideologies, and habits that privilege white people, I will continue to be read as white, however I identify, and I will continue to benefit from that moniker. That's why we have to work to dismantle the systems and confront the ideological lies and help each other unlearn the biases. But I do think this ethnic reclamation does some important things. 
For one thing, it reminds us that all of us, including white people, come from ancestors who were once indigenous to somewhere. We come from people who knew at one time how to live in relationship with a particular land, particular plants and animals and rock formations and waters. This is not to romanticize the lives of indigenous people in Europe or anywhere. Human beings are and have always been complicated, and life then was complicated as well. But our ancestors knew some things that might be useful to us now in this fraught moment of spiraling chaos. It might even be true that that knowledge lives somewhere in our DNA. One of the things I learned as I did research on salt in the Hebrew tradition that Jesus would have known is that salt of the earth has a very ancient antecedent. Legend has it that way, way back when the Israelites were taken into exile the first time by the Assyrians, some of them never returned, but instead were scattered over the earth, their Jewishness forgotten eventually even by themselves. But that the Torah remained written on their hearts Even though they did not have access to the teachings directly, they continued to live them out, acting as a preservative element for kindness, generosity, justice, and truth throughout the world. Thank you, Richard Swanson, for teaching me that story. Could it be that the teachings our ancestors knew about how to live in right relationship live on in us? Is there some way we can access those? and begin to live them out, even in the kind of exile that is whiteness. If nothing else, it would keep us from feeling compelled to co-opt other people's teachings and ceremonies. Jesus said, I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he wasn't talking about the civic codes of a nation state. He was talking, when he said law, about the ways God intends us to live in right relationship with all the rest of God's creation. Placing ourselves under the dictates of God's law, under the code of right relationship, in an ecosystem, in other words, means we must renounce our loyalty to every system that contradicts that. That means renouncing our loyalty to the United States as the highest arbiter of our righteousness. It means renouncing our loyalty to whiteness and instead seeking to live into right relationship with all people. It means renouncing our psychological investment in policing as the source of our safety. It means remembering that our safety rests in God and in our loyalty to the guidance of a God who teaches us to care for the land, to welcome the stranger, to refrain from harvesting all the produce of the plants and to leave enough for others, to tend to our own and others' right to rest, and so much more. It means remembering. And as I remember, or try to reconstitute my knowledge of the people I may come from, and what happened to them through the processes of colonization and privatization of land, through assimilation to whiteness, I find myself accessing deeper and deeper senses of solidarity with all peoples everywhere, who are struggling for self-determination, for the right to their own saltiness. At the same time, I find myself deeply humbled. I don't get confused anymore, thinking that everyone wants a white American lifestyle. 
and that loving others means helping them assimilate to that. In fact, my own investment in that lifestyle is washing away by the minute. I am not sure that home is where we are headed, exactly. I don't imagine that returning to England or Wales or Eastern Europe is really any kind of answer. There is no purity to be had. If activists in Haiti are the light of the world, if organizers for black power and self-determination in this country are the light of the world, if indigenous organizers of Turtle Island light up the world as they strategize for sovereignty over their lands and lives, then there is no single light of the world, no single city on a hill. And if any any place claims to be that, then we should probably hightail it away from there as fast as we can. There is no room for hubris in this salty vision. If we commit ourselves to the right of every community to self-organize and self-determine in mutually respectful and equitable relationship with every other community, then none of the social structures forged by white supremacist heteropatriarchal capitalism will serve us. We are headed somewhere, no doubt, as deeply entangled as we are. But if that place is someplace we call collective liberation, then I don't think we can get there as white people. We are going to have to find a way to renounce whiteness, which means disinvesting in and dismantling every system that keeps us mired in it. We are going to have to remember our own saltiness and refuse to assimilate to any system, structure, culture, or way of being that contradicts the deeper law of God the law that Jesus came to fulfill, in other words, to model, to lead us into. We are going to need some salty departures, and we will most likely be headed not toward any self-identified city on the hill, but into the fertile and generous darkness. Amen. For your call to action this week, I urge you to stand with the Black Lives Matter chapter in Memphis to demand the dissolving of special task forces in the Memphis Police Department, task forces that pose a special danger to Black residents. You can find demands, contact information of elected officials, and more in the toolkit that I will link to in the transcript. If you're part of a congregation, please also download our Community Safety for All toolkit, which will help you organize your congregation to reduce and eventually end reliance on policing. Finally, if you'd like to learn more about Haiti and the people's struggles there, I'll list some reliable sources for that in the transcript as well. The mainstream media accounts in this country invariably omit the role of our own nation in the suffering there. It's not clear what will enable the people of Haiti to create the conditions of peace there, but the solutions being bandied about in the media, in the U.S., and otherwise, things like U.S. or U.N. military intervention or increased funding for police, well, we know those are not nearly salty enough, and they are no departure 
from the colonial ways under which Haiti is already suffering. Please urge your congressional representatives to resist those measures. That's our episode for this week. We'd love to hear what you think of it and of the work we're doing here generally. What are you making of it? How are your own movement struggles unfolding and what are you learning from those? You can comment on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or you can fill out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. As always, we especially welcome feedback from non-Christians and people of color. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org. That's also where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. Finally, we want to thank our sound editor for this week, Claire Hitchens. Thank you so much, Claire. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for grounded accountability, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.